All right, how you doing? So this episode of the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast is being produced in association with Calm. So the camp- Calm is the campaign against living miserably. And Calm is a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide, which unbelievably is the biggest killer of men under the age of 45 in the United Kingdom. And men also constitute three quarters of all suicides in this country, which I think you'll agree are shocking statistics. So I'm really happy to support this cause through the podcast. Calm offers support to men who are down or in crisis and are intent on challenging the culture that stops men from speaking out and seeking help when they need it. Like a lot of people, I've been personally affected by this issue. So yeah, this is a cause that's really important to me. You can find out more about their uh, worthy work by checking out the website www.thecalmzone.net or by supporting calm initiatives such as Nelson's Tour de Test Valley, an annual cycling sportive held in memory of the much-loved and much-missed Nelson Pratt. This year's event, 2017, is being held on September the 16th in Hampshire. It's a truly beautiful celebration of Nelson's life, organised by his friends and family, that these days enjoys a reputation as one of the UK's top multi-route cycling sportives, but obviously more importantly, what Nelson's Tour de Test Valley does as an event is raise hundreds of thousands of pounds for Calm that has enabled that organisation to carry on its vital work. So yeah, find out more by heading over to www.thecalmzone.net and seeing what you can do to help and to find out more. All right, thanks a lot. Let's get on with it. Hello, friends. How's it going? My name's Matt Barr and you're listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. This is the podcast where I try and uncover the most interesting stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Regular listeners will definitely know the drill by now, but I've got a feeling there's probably a fair few new listeners tuning into this one. Uh, On account of my guest this week, who is without doubt the most high profile action sports athlete in the world right now, climber Alex Honold. So one of the questions I get asked a lot about this podcast is how much time does it take? Because as I think I've mentioned a few times, I basically do this in my spare time as a bit of a laugh, really. Uh, And it varies, to be honest, depending on a lot of different factors. But one of the big time killers is definitely try to book the guests. And to be honest, I've had varying levels of success with uh, some of the guests that I've tried to get on the show. You've got people that agree to it straight away. Someone like Tom Burt was a great example. We were just in Verbi at the same time. He's a legend. I asked him if he'd do it. He said, yeah, we did it. Easy. Um, couldn't really plan that one, but worked great. Or, you know, I've hit up friends who uh, who have also obviously been up for it straight away. But then you've got, you know, the big hitters, the people that I don't really have any contact with. And in those uh, cases, it's a question of going through agents or contacts, try to, you know, try to get a relationship going them. And, and that, it can be hit and miss. You know, sometimes they're into it. Sometimes they're not. I understand it's the name of the game. But somebody like today's guest, Alex, is definitely in the latter category. And to be honest, I didn't even try and get an interview with him uh, because of his uh, high visibility and profile at the minute. So it was, yeah, it's funny that this one landed really simply and straightforwardly in my lap when Alex came over to the UK for twenty uh, for 48 hours sorry, to do a North Face event and slideshow in, in London. And uh, the guys at North Face and Mongoose PR were very accommodating in hooking me up and, and getting me along for the day to speak to Alex obviously I was pretty keen I mean this is the first interview I've done at a press junket which is basically when celebrities or athletes or and the like do a lot of media in one day you know when you see um 
film stars sat in front of a poster of their of their film, you know, and doing soundbite interviews, they're, they're doing a press junket. You know, the, the journalists will get half an hour or, or sometimes like 20 minutes or whatever. Uh, and anyone who's listened to this show will know that doesn't really fit in with my, shall we say, somewhat relaxed and conversational style of doing this. Still, this was Alex Honnold in London and agreeing to sit down with me for... Uh, well, I did ask for an hour, and in the end, I got 45 minutes. But obviously, I went for it, uh, and as I think you'll hear, it turned out pretty well. So if you listen to this and wondering who Alex Honnold is and what all the fuss is about, as I said at the top, he is the most high-profile action sports athlete in the world right now. He was already famous as a climber because of um, his feats, free soloing some of the world's most iconic climbs, many of them in California's iconic Yosemite Valley. Um, he'd free soloed a route called Moonlight Buttress in Zion National Park, for example. He'd done the Triple Crown in Yosemite in record time. He uh, ticked off the much-coveted Fitzroy Traverse in Patagonia um, a while back with his friend and climbing partner, Tommy Caldwell. So he was already a very, very high-profile um, climber and athlete. Um, but then on June the 6th, I think it was this year, 2017, he did something that catapulted him to... Uh, stratospheric level of fame and notoriety, really. He free soloed the route Free Rider on El Capitan in Yosemite, which was immediately recognised as one of the most significant climbs in history and a feat that has left his peers and the world at large speechless with incredulity, really, and has completely changed the climbing landscape. So for the uninitiated, free soloing basically means climbing unsupported without ropes or protective gear, just you, the rock, a bag of chalk your climbing shoes and whatever you're wearing. Um, among climbers, I'd say it's considered to be the, the purest and most, most ethical form of climbing. But obviously, it's extremely dangerous. Fall from the roots Alex does and you, you die. There's no doubt about that. And that's happened to many of his peers and heroes. So um, free soloing the 3,000 plus foot El Capitan, which is the most iconic big wall in, in the world, as Alex explains... Um, was a big deal. And the interesting thing is that he knew it was a big deal, uh, being the student of rock climbing that he is. And during our chat, I did ask him about this, and he he did tell me about how he prepared for the climb and how he first thought about it. I think he says it was in 2008 after he free soloed Half Dome, in, also in Yosemite. But it's took him this long to actually mentally get to the point where he could believe it was possible. So I'm not going to say much more, because uh, it was, a, it, despite our limited time, it was a really fun chat, this, and we did we did get on really well. And um, he speaks very entertainingly and very eloquently about this amazing feat. If you're a climbing geek, and I'm guessing, like I said at the start, there's going to be people listening to this that are just here because it's Alex Honnold. You're going to get a lot out of hearing him break down how he did it and how he felt on the climb. Um, I have tried to keep it pretty um, accessible, so please forgive me if if I don't get too geeky on it because I wanted it to be, you know, something that non-climbers could get something out of. And for, for anyone listening to this who isn't a climber and doesn't know who Alex Honnold is or doesn't know anything about the world, I think, you know, this is just an opportunity to sit back and enjoy one of the most high-profile action sports athletes in the world speaking about his life and career really entertainingly. I really liked him. He's a frother, basically which you will hear. He's a self-confessed climbing geek who comes across as supremely laid back. And from what I could see, he is pretty laid back. But obviously he's channeling a hell of a steely inner driver motivation 
that has led him to tick off one of the most significant physical achievements in human history. And I know that sounds like I'm laying it on really thick there, but it really is that big a deal, this. Um, so here it is, Alex Honold on Freerider. Enjoy. So yeah, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me. How's your day going, Alex? My my day is hectic. Yeah. There are a lot of people at the wall today. Yeah, it's busy, right? Yeah. And what is it you're actually doing here? Uh, I'm here with the North Face for the uh, Walls Are Meant for Climbing campaign. So okay. I'm basically here climbing with the the climbing community. It's all about you know inclusion through through climbing walls. But right, so people. So what? it's basically a free day at the gym. Okay. So like every you know anyone from the public can come in and try climbing and sort of like see the climbing community and right. And uh, I'm teaching classes throughout the day and then I'm giving a slideshow this evening. Oh, okay. It's like or a lecture, I suppose you call it here. Yeah. Okay. But right. So how's that been? Good. Yeah, it's uh, it's impressive how many people are here. Yeah, <laughs> it's super busy, right? Yeah, there are a lot. And it's been just people cycling in and out throughout the day. Right. I mean, they said something like a thousand people coming climbing today. Okay, so how's it's like, that? Um, it's yeah. a new experience. I mean, it's a lot of people at the wall. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty <laughs> hectic, isn't it? Um, so how long are you over for? I'm just here for this event. Okay. So I fly back tomorrow. Okay. But this isn't the first time you've been in the UK, is it? No, I've spent probably over two months in the UK climbing various places. Yeah, because if you, am I right in thinking you've been up to Sheffield and yeah, I spent six weeks on the grit. Yeah, Um, that's almost ten years ago now. Is it okay? Yeah, it was 2008. Right, but you did some of those sort of classic grit routes, did you? Yeah, all the you know Gaia, Mashuga, like all the classic hard grit routes. So how was that? I, I mean, at the time, especially, it was amazing. It's funny because now I think going back, I don't know if I would do any of those routes anymore. Really? Because <laughs> I would just be like, oh, it's not worth it. It's like too dangerous, too sketchy. Right. But, um, but certainly at the time, I had that hunger and I was super fired up for it. And I was, yeah. it was like really exciting. Did you know that culture and that, and that scene? Did you know about the grit? Well, I mean, I grew up like watching the movie Hard Grit. I was going to ask you about yeah, that. Yeah, when I was a kid yeah. in the gym, I saw Hard Grit. And, um, and actually, the, the, the gym that I grew up in in Sacramento had this little like video player thing that went on loop. And so it like showed the same little segments of different films. So I always saw the hard grit segment. And you'd be like, that's so crazy. Right, so okay. I mean, it was pretty cool to come over. Yeah, yeah. And I definitely, I mean, British climbing history has such a, I mean, there's just such a strong culture of climbing here. And I knew a lot about that, like Johnny Dawes and yeah. you know, like Ben Moon and everything. I'm actually trying to speak to Johnny next week. Actually, I, I saw this. him here yesterday. Oh, he's here yesterday? Yeah. Right, yeah. I'm supposed to be meeting him in Malden He was, next he was week. at the cafe, like, you know, 10 meters away. Ah, okay, just, right. Uh, yesterday, I was like, oh my God, that's Johnny Dawes. Yeah, yeah. Still a legend. Yeah. yeah. Still a total legend. And still, like, really quite a good climber. Yeah. Like, well, not what... in the best shape, but, like, an amazing climber you, still. Have you seen the film where he's doing the no hands yeah. climbing? No, I climbed with him in the, the slate quarries last Last, last summer okay. so like one year ago basically I did a bunch of climbing with him so and, how was uh, that? And he, well he was climbing like French 6C with no hands and I was like that's pretty crazy wow okay right um, so yeah so you've been over here a few times you know the scene um, mm. and where are you off to next um, I'm, I've been in the west coast I've basically been like van road tripping around the around the US for the last couple months yeah okay but, so, right um, just normal summer road trip stuff yeah okay um so I know, obviously, about your background, born in Sacramento, grew up climbing in places like this, I, I gather. Yeah, like yeah in, and actually, it's funny, my home, my home gym is a lot like this wall. It's not quite as nice of a facility, but it's... Okay, uh, so you're kind of pretty familiar with these scenes. Yeah, I mean, it, it reminds me of home, for right. sure. Okay, um, and there's countless interviews with you about your background and your career and how you got into climbing and free soloing. And, um, 
a lot of people like a lot of the, the the story seems to be that you you got into free saloon because you couldn't find people to partner with because you were you were quite yeah that's, shy to that's do certainly that. part of it is that and you were also inspired by people like peter Croft and, yeah, and, and john sure. Batcher and that so um at what age did you start going down that path with you climbing um i mean it's it's hard to say but i mean part of it though is as i grew up it also just was was cool you know like i was growing up in california and there was definitely more of that that climbing culture like soloing was just part of climbing okay and so um i mean i didn't really start free soloing until i started climbing outdoors more so that's like once i learned how to drive and was able to like go to the rocks because yeah. where where i grew up there was nothing really close so it's like an hour and a half drive to get to the nearest rock right um so basically when i was 18 19 i started venturing away from home more and so i started soloing a bit right so but from, I, but I'd been doing some after hours soloing in the gym because okay. um, I was working there. So like when the gym closed, I would you know do a couple things without a rope or right. whatever. So you were inspired by these these guys. That, yeah, that, it was certainly it was like in some ways it was more common back then. You know, it's funny it makes me sound old, but like back in the day, you know, like right. soloing was like more of a thing. Yeah. Nowadays, well, they were famous some of those guys, right? I mean, yeah, for sure. I mean, John Backer and Peter Croft were yeah. like legends of the sport. But so. There was like the whole Stone Master culture, which was all the people climbing in the 70s. Yeah. But so the places that I went bouldering around Northern California when I was a kid all had problems named like Yabo's Roof. And this guy Yabo was like John Yablonski. He was yeah. like a famous soloist. Another so they're all, yeah, yeah, they're all these like legendary so stories of like him falling off a root and like catching a tree branch and like landing back on the ground. And, right. you know, you're just like, whoa, that's so crazy. Yeah, yeah. And like anywhere I climbed, you know, I would be on routes that like reminded me of these guys. And you're just like, oh, I want to, I want to participate in that history you know right okay yeah. right so yeah. what was the first sort of significant ascent do you think free solo ascent that you did i mean the first real solos i did were um this route uh oh, oh knapsack crack which is really easy and then this thing uh corrugation corner both at lover's leap which is like a pretty classic granite area yeah. um, near lake tahoe right but they're both like very easy routes but it but they're you know 100 meters tall okay so it was so, like felt pretty badass at the time yeah how old but, were you then I was like 18, maybe 19. I'm okay. not sure. And we, is this when you first started to visit Yosemite as well and, and get involved in that? Yeah, that right culture? around that time I started going to Yosemite. Right. My, it was probably the year after where I started getting like more involved in Yosemite. Okay. So how was it when you turned up there? Because when you see this sort of, you know, like something like Valley Uprising or, or mm -hmm. you read about it, you know, they, they kind of paint it as like super macho, like culture. And it's like... Oh, uh, well, I mean, when I first showed up in Yosemite, I, I was so far removed from whatever the climbing scene is. I was just like some random guy showing up and climbing. Right. So, I mean, I had no, I had no idea what the climbing culture was, what the scene was, what other people were doing. Okay. I would just show up with my friend and we would just like try to climb some things. Was, it, was that you intimidating? Know? Um, well, I mean, the walls are super intimidating. <laughs> yeah, when you're learning, like, I mean, it wasn't the other climbers that were intimidating. It's to like, you just look at some of the big walls. And it, particularly then, since I didn't really have any of the skills or anything, and right. I didn't, you know, I didn't even know how to place gear that well. And you're just like, yeah, it's super intimidating. Okay. But then as you, as I learned, it, you know, became less so. So and what kind of routes were you aspiring to climb in those days? Well, so actually back then, it's, this is like in some ways some of the, the happiest times in my climbing. Like I'm pretty, just thinking about it, I'm like, oh, it's so nice. But so I had this friend, uh, this guy, Josh McCoy, who was, um, lived in Sacramento. He was like a way overstoked climber. Right. I didn't have a car at the time. And so uh, he was working as like a furniture mover and then he'd get three days off. And so we would drive to the valley for three day weekends. Okay. And uh, we would basically do three big routes in a weekend. So it would be like a big free route, like maybe, you know, a 15 pitch, 510. And then the next day we would do like a wall in a day. So like a 10 pitch aid route. Right. And then the next day we do another like 15 pitch free route. So and none of them, none of them are cutting edge. None of them are hard, but we were doing like a lot of volume. We yeah, were just right. like banging out classic routes. 
And that's like when Yosemite was all new to me. So everything was like an exciting new adventure. Like for us just to get to the tops of the formations was like a big adventure. Like we didn't know any of the descents. We didn't know how to get down. I mean, you know, like when I go to Yosemite now, I know the park so well. I know every trail. I know all the descents. It's like, you know, so now the challenge is just like finding a route that's like hard for me. Yeah. You know, back then it was like just getting to the top was like epic adventure. It's like it was all like pioneering new terrain. You know, it was pretty cool. Amazing. So you look back on those days really, really fondly. Oh, you got some boxes in Sorry, the way. Should we move them? No, no, I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Okay. I was just like, oh, I'm going to get cramping my knee if I don't like yeah, sort yeah. out my ergonomics. Sure. So who, who were your influences back then on, in, that, in those years? Well, in those years, um, I mean, I was definitely looking at the last generation, the Stone Masters, looking at Peter Croft and, and, uh, and John Backer. But, um, and then Tommy Caldwell was sort of like contemporary hero. And he was like in the process of freeing all the hard routes on El Cap. Right. And then, of course, Chris Sharma was like the man. Yeah. You know? But I mean that kind of rounds out like all my heroes. Yeah, yeah. So, and but you were aware of the history and and, and yeah, I definitely. I mean, I was totally up on all the magazines, the movies, yeah. the like. I was way into climbing. So when did you? I mean, I'm still way into climbing. Yeah, yeah. You geek uh, on it, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So when did you start thinking bigger and start thinking actually I could start doing something different in the valley? Like when when did that start coming around? Well, it took a long time, really. Uh, I mean, basically, it was just a matter of climbing all the routes. And then I was sort of, I was soloing quite a bit of easy stuff on the side just to, like, tick routes in the guidebook. Yeah. Because I would go to, like, whole new sectors, like, whole new areas that I'd never been and just, like, do all the five sixes and five sevens. And I was, I was all about volume, you know, like, doing more pitches every day. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, like, as that started to feel easier and as, as I felt better about it, you know, it seemed more reasonable to climb some of the harder routes. And then, yeah. And then, yeah, after, like, two years of sort of, continuing on that path i was able to do some of the harder stuff so is that stuff like the triple crown that you did in yosemite no that's a few years later yeah it's a bit later okay so that like that took some building up too yeah so how long did that take before you before you got to that sort of stage so the i did the triple which is the three biggest walls in the valley um in 2012 so i think i had been climbing in yosemite for seven years by then okay and and especially then i was going for spring and fall probably two months each so you know i've been spending like three or four months a year yeah for seven years i mean that's a lot of time in yosemite yeah so is there was there was there a master plan with the roots that you've that you've pioneered over no your i mean no like in my first season or two the big goal was to climb el cap in a day okay and so my buddy josh and i climbed the nose in 23 hours and like right. 23 and a half hours it was yeah. terrible we were worked it, we were crushed you know it was like the right. most tired i'd ever been yeah in some ways actually still the most tired i've ever been because now with a higher level of fitness doing a 24 hour push just doesn't make me as exhausted as it did then yeah and um and so just climbing the nose was like the big thing right and then you know, and then I wanted to free climb the Salathe, and so I did that over, you know, three days, and then I tried to do it again in a day and failed, and then came back, like, two years later and did it in a day. I mean, it was all, like, a steady, you know, it's like a ladder where you're just yeah. constantly, like, another one goal, goal after another. And another goal. I mean, that's what's so cool about Yosemite is just unlimited rock, and there's, there's so much difficult climbing that if you get even a little bit better, it just, like, opens up more and more options. Yeah. Um, another significant thing is Moonlight Buttress that you solo was that like 2008 maybe yeah that was 2008 right okay and that was probably would you say that's the thing that initially put you on a bigger profile yeah that and Half Dome I mean Half Dome is probably more iconic actually but that was later in the same year yeah Um, so what was it do you think about those achievements that that sort of captured people so much 
Well, I think those were sort of the first step beyond what other people had done. Yeah. I mean, up till then, I'd sold, you know, the Rostrum and Asterman, which are classic roots in Yosemite, but those were roots that Peter Croft had sold in 1987. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not exactly breaking new ground to repeat something that Peter had done 20 years before, because um, it, it was exactly 20 years later when I did it, Yeah. Uh, which is crazy. Which is amazing, isn't it? Yeah, really? I mean, it's to crazy. To be that ahead like of what, his time. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. it really speaks to how good a climber Peter was. Yeah. Um, but so then the next year, you know, I sort of like broke into new ground. Yeah. And it seemed like nobody had really been free soloing in, in the U.S. at a high level for 20, for the last 20 years. So it was kind of like a new thing. Why do you think that was? I just, I mean, I just think there aren't that many people who are into it. Right. You know, it's like, it's, it's like a slow sport that, um, Well, as you, know, you just explained, I mean, it's yeah, years, isn't it, for you to get to yeah. the level where you can... But also there aren't that many people who are interested and then they're... Of the people who are interested, there aren't that many who are able. Right. And then, you know, it takes a lot to be able to, to sort of have all the right pieces. Yeah. You know? Okay. Well, I guess it's a good point to talk about Freerider and El Capitan. Mm. So when did you start to sort of conceive that that might be possible? That you, that you Actually, it's a good segue because as soon as I sold at Halftime in 2008, you know, El Cap was like the obvious next thing. Right. So starting, okay, in, two, so that, starting that in 2009, ago. I was like, all right, El Cap is next. Really? But then every right. time I'd show up in the valley, I would just look at the wall and be like, hell no. You know, it's like, it's so scary. Yeah. Um, and so it took a really long time for it to actually seem, you know, feasible. But uh, I mean, I certainly started thinking about it. Really? So then. that long ago? Yeah. So could you explain, because there'll be a lot of people listening to my podcast that aren't mm -hmm. like super well-versed in climbing. So, and one of the things I've really noticed about the climb is the reactions from even like your peers and other climbers is people are like pretty incredulous about it. They really like amazed at the feet. Why is it so much more significant than say half dome? I mean, it's hard to like, so El Capitan is much bigger than any other wall in Yosemite. It's like a 900 meter wall. So, I mean, that's like one of the biggest walls in the world. Yeah. Um, and it's also quite a bit harder. So the technical difficulty is, is harder. Um, but the main thing is that it's also just much more sheer. It's like aesthetically, I mean, you just look at the wall and it's cleaner, it's more vertical, it's steeper. Um, you know, it's like hard to put your finger on it exactly. It's hard to quantify. I but guess like it's when just you, iconic, right? The whole thing. Well, yeah, 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 it's definitely iconic, but it's like, it's just harder to climb. You yeah. know, it's like more sustained. It's just everything about it is sort of like ramped up. You know, and so when you look at Half Dome, you're like, oh, it doesn't look like that hard to climb necessarily. Right. Or certainly when you look at the topo, there are a lot of easy pitches. Yeah. When you look at the topo for El Cap and you see like how hard everything is, you're like, whoa, that seems pretty hard. You know, El Cap is just sort of like a different, different level. So is that, and that seems to have always been the progression in the valley, right? Something will go up Half Dome and something will go up El Capitan. Has that always been the, 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 the benchmark I mean, in the yeah. valley? Yeah. It's, I mean, that's actually totally fair. Half Dome was climbed before El Cap. Yeah. It was the first, in 1957, like yeah. the first big wall. And then El Cap was a couple years later. Yeah. And then Half Dome was freed before El Cap. Yeah. Same deal, like a few years earlier. Um, I mean, it kind of makes sense because they're like similar scales, but El Cap is just so much more demanding. Yeah. So in your book, you, one of the things you say is uh, free soloing is all about preparation. You know, and you talk at length about the preparation that you that you put into these climbs. So, could you talk me through some of the prep that you did for for Freerider? Yeah. So, um, well, there's basically the physical and the mental side of it. The two the two halves. The physical side is just like making sure that you can physically climb the whole route. So for me, that meant climbing the route with a rope several times and and doing all the hard moves and sort of learning it all. And then there's the mental side, which is believing that you can do it. You know, feeling comfortable, not being afraid. Um, and then sort of the visualization, like the, the running through it all in your mind and, and just like getting ready for that experience, you yeah. know? Okay. Um, and I think that the mental side took quite a bit longer for me because it took a long time to even 
believe that it was possible to solo El Cap. Right. Um, you know, the physical side, I mean, I climbed El Cap without falling like as early as 2006 or seven or something. Yeah. And so, you know, technically it was possible then, but like mentally it was just completely out of the question. Okay. You so know? how did you know you were ready? Um, well, I kind of just, I sort of had a, I had like a mental checklist sort of, well, actually I had a lot of written lists as well, but I had all these question marks on the wall, like different things to work through. And then once I sort of worked through all of them, then, I mean, you're just ready, you yeah. know? Okay. I, was, I right. sort of but it was realized that, that there's like... It was that methodical. It was, it was super methodical, okay. yeah. Okay, so you yeah. had lists and you had... Because yeah. I know you keep like training logs yeah, and exactly. diaries, don't you? So yeah. it was literally a question of like, right, I'm goal setting here. And yeah, this exactly. And how I can achieve So I've broken goal. into tons of little pieces and yeah. then I sort of worked through all the pieces and then there's nothing left to work through. So wow. then to do more would just be sort of procrastinating. And is that how you yeah. always approach these projects? Um, no, I've done a lot of other ones where I'm just like, screw it, here we go, and right, see okay. what happens. Right. But El Cap was sort of a different scale. The challenge was much more, but also I was um, doing a feature documentary about it. Yeah, and sure. So, like, That's that National kinda, Geographic, right? Yeah. Yep. And so that sort of required a slightly different approach. Right. Um, I couldn't just, like, spur the moment and be like, whatever, I'm going for it. Yeah, okay. And I'm just a little older, and I'd like to say a little smarter now. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, okay. like, you know, I have a stable girlfriend, and, like, life is all good, and so there's none of that angst to be like, screw it, I'm just going to go up there and see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Okay. Uh, it's but, just a little smarter. But it sounds like visualization and memory are, are crucial, right, for you to be able to do yeah, this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, being able to run through, I mean, I could still tell you a bunch of the crux sequences. Well, I was about to you ask know. you that. Can, do, you, do you remember it Yeah, that Yeah, I could, I could walk you through the crux right now, like the way every hold looks and feels and like where my balance shifts and, you know, how I move my hips and all that stuff. Right, and was there one point you were particularly worried about on the climb? Oh, was there one point? Yeah. Uh, well, the crux, like what I was just saying, is yeah. the most difficult section. So that was kind of like a make or break, you know. If I couldn't do the crux, then obviously I would never solo the route. Yeah. Um, and then also down low, there are several slab pitches, like basically low angle climbing that are extremely polished. Okay. And so even though they're technically easier, they're just so insecure feeling that it took me a really long time to actually feel comfortable on them. Right, okay. That's called the free blast. It's like the first uh, 300 meters of the route. Right. It's kind of like its own little section. Okay. But um, the free blast like took a long time for me to feel good about. Right. And was there a moment where you thought, right, I've got this, it's, it's, it's happening? Or um, is it not really like that? What, what do you mean, like beforehand or as I did On it? On the climb. Oh, as I did it, as soon yeah. as I finished the crux, I was like, I am crushing this route. Right. It was kind of like an escal. It was like a snowball of like good sensations because as I, when I made it through the free blast at the bottom, I felt really good and I was trusting my feet and it was good. And then, yeah. so I felt confident when I got to the crux and then I did the crux perfectly. Everything was great. And then from there to the top, I was just like, I am crushing. Right. But um, above the crux, there's three more pitches that are pretty hard. So I was still sort of like keeping it in check a little bit. As soon as I finished those three pitches, then I had another uh, basically 200 meters to the summit. And I was, that was like a sprint. I was just like, I did it. You know, so and just you, like so ran to the top. So you were just stoked. You were just enjoying that. Yeah, I was so that. stoked. It, right. was, it was awesome. Okay. Yeah. So how did it feel at the top? I was so stoked. Yeah. I mean, I can't even describe. I was, I was elated. I was delighted, you know, and I had my friends there filming. And so it was really nice to like be able to share the moment with my friends and, you know, everybody's given hugs and we're all super happy. Yeah. I mean, we'd all put a lot of work into it. Yeah. And it's just, and it's funny because I'd spent so much time preparing, everything went so smoothly and I felt so good that it was like everything I could have hoped for, you know, it was like this perfect experience. Yeah. Cause but. another, another thing that I've read from previous things is you said like previous projects you've talked about, they haven't been as fulfilling as you'd maybe hoped. Like, so well, that, that depends a little bit because, but, but yeah, it's definitely true. There have been other solos 
where I've done them and then afterward, you know, maybe I got scared on the climb or maybe it didn't feel as smooth as I hoped for or just whatever. Um, but for whatever reason I finished and I'm just like, that was disappointing or like I should have done better or whatever. Yeah. So this was different. No, this was just like everything was perfect. I was yeah. so stoked. Okay. So it's a but cool. also, the, I mean, El Cap and Freerider meant so much more to me than, than anything else I've ever sold. Just because the wall is so iconic and it's just such a, such an experience. Yeah. You know? I mean, it might sound like a stupid question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. You, you were very aware of the significance of it all the way through. Yeah, you mean like the fact that it's historic or whatever? Yeah, or yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, it sounds sounds douchey to say like, oh, I did this historic thing. But I mean, certainly beforehand, I'd always built it up as like the most impressive thing in climbing. I'd always thought of it as like that would be the ultimate dream in climbing. Like yeah. that would be the best thing. Um, you know, but the thing is, is like when I thought of it that way, it was like out in the distance as some like unattainable goals. Like that's the holy grail of climbing. Yeah. But then by the time I got there, it seemed totally natural and it seemed like normal to do it. Yeah. I mean, or else I wouldn't have been able to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, so like after I finished, I was like, oh, well, of course I did it. It makes total sense. You know, mm -hmm. like it felt totally secure. Everything was great. Yeah. But, um, but I certainly remember the last 10 years that I've been putting it on this pedestal as like the most impressive thing, you know, in climbing. It sounds like it was the almost like the logical result of like, you know, years of, of preparation, years of experience. That yeah, and I'd sort of set out a plan for myself, like, okay, I need to, there were, originally there were maybe 10 or 12 sections of the route that I was uncertain about, and yeah. then I sort of worked through them, and then I was down to like four or five sections, and I worked through those, and then at a certain point, there are no sections left. Yeah. And so either you do it, or you don't do it. Yeah. But if you don't do it, it's because you just like don't have what it takes or whatever. Yeah. And I, you know, I basically had done all the prep work, and you're like, all right, now it's time to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's another bit of a segue, but, you know, one of the things I've noticed in, in when I've been researching, speaking to you, is that your relationship with risk and, and how you um, justify the risks you take is something that you seem to be constantly asked about and, mm -hmm. and almost asked to, to justify. Why, why do you think people are so fascinated by that? Well, I mean, I don't think it's that surprising that people are interested just because it's such a rare thing where people face their own mortality or choose to do something that's dangerous. I mean, particularly if you're working a normal job in a city, it's like pretty rare that, that you're in a situation where you could actually die. Yeah. You know? Um, do you think it's because heights are that primal primal fear everyone can relate to it well it's not just that primal fear i mean there's definitely something very elemental about climbing where yeah. it's like man against nature man on a cliff you know alone on the wall like whatever that's the name of my book but um <laughs> you know but it, but it is very nice elemental um you know it's just like it's very pure and certainly the soloing is easy to understand because people can imagine themselves in that situation with no rope and they're just like oh my gosh yeah. like sort of in the same way that like big wave surfing is sort of elemental you can see a tiny little man on a little board on this huge wave out in the middle of nowhere you can comprehend and just it like, yeah and you just immediately like feel yourself transported to that position and, a, and it feels like outrageous a, like a relatable risk i guess isn't it yeah um I've, t I've heard you i think it was on the tim ferris thing that you did talk about fear almost as as something like hunger you know, like recognizing yeah. recognizing the difference between fear and danger in the same way that like if you're hungry you're not actually starving you know yeah like yeah. is that is that something that you can consciously do like when i mean certainly to some extent i mean when you're experiencing fear your body's like undergoing a whole physiological response like you know your vision constricts your your pulse quickens like a lot of things happen yeah and i mean the rational part of your brain can still sort of step back from that and say you know you are experiencing fear 
but that shouldn't necessarily change your course of action anyway. I mean, like you can be very, very afraid and you can still act exactly the way you're supposed to. Yeah. I mean, really that's kind of the definition of courage and I'm sure like soldiers and firemen and you know, all kinds of people have to deal with that all the time where they're deeply afraid, but they do what they're supposed to do because like that's their, their commitment. They're almost able to suppress that kind of response. Yeah, totally. And like, and in climbing, it's normally easier because you can wait until you don't experience the fear. You know what I mean? Like it's very rare that in climbing, you actually have to suppress fear in that way. Whereas like a soldier, I'm sure is always like deeply afraid of going into battle because there's a legitimate chance that they're going to die. You know, it's not like they can wait until the right day where they're prepared and it's not dangerous anymore. Like it's always dangerous. Yeah. So like that requires a lot of courage. I feel like to constantly overcome that fear Yeah. with climbing, you know, occasionally, like I've certainly had moments where I got very afraid and I had to overcome fear. But typically, I just work on something until it's not scary, and then yeah. and then it seems like totally natural to do it because it's no longer scary. I was about to say, so the the, the fact that you're so prepared and that, mm-hmm. that you've been through it so much is is the reason why you, it isn't really a factor. Yeah. So climbing freerider wasn't like overcoming fear; it was just sort of like this natural consequence of like all the preparation. Yeah. You know, so, it's like it wasn't scary anymore. It was just like seemed normal. Yeah. So when was the last time you did get scared? Down low on freerider, there was still like one move that's kind of scary. There were like a couple little things on freerider that were a little scary. Yeah, um, but I sort of knew that they would be, and it's like a very specific move. Like, okay, now I lower my left foot to this little edge, and it's yeah. like I know it's going to be scary because it's like this weird step down, but I also know that it's going to work, so just do it. Yeah, okay. Um, you know, there are a couple things like that. Yeah. But actually, I was just in Alaska um, for a Northwest expedition. I spent two weeks there. Okay. And uh, and this that's is like after freerider. Yeah, this is like right after freerider. I went right. to Alaska for two weeks, and it was like deeply scary. It was like really bad snow conditions, really crevassy. So they're like huge holes all over and we're all roped together skiing and everything. But like you constantly feel like you're about to fall into the abyss. Wow. And it's like, I mean, it's very scary. Yeah. But at the same time, actually, that's kind of an example of, you know, courage to some extent because it was very scary. But you're also like, if you want to get from here to there, you're going to have to like navigate this field of crevasses. And so you just do it. That's one of the the interesting things about these sports as well, isn't it? Whether it's like climbing, whether it's like snowboarding, skiing, everybody, no matter what their level can probably recognize that relationship because everybody mm. will have got totally. to a, will have got to a point you know, obviously no one's at your level but certainly i can recognize situations would have been the mountains or whatever where i where i've definitely felt that well everybody has a comfort zone i mean what i found deeply scary in alaska a lot of my friends who are cutting edge alpinists would have found completely normal because they have yeah. much more experience in the snow yeah you know so i was like this is terrifying i'm gonna fall in these holes but yeah. those guys have probably fallen in holes a bunch of times they know that you just climb right back out it's no problem you're roped together i mean that's the point of being on belay and so they're like, oh, no problem. If you fall in, you fall in. Like, who cares? Just like when I'm sport climbing, I'm like, if I fall, I fall. Like, it doesn't really matter because that's why you have a rope on to catch you. Yeah. You know, so what it's doing? all just like what you're used to and how comfortable you are. And what was the, uh, what was the, the trip about? What were you doing up there? Uh, well, we were there to try to climb this really large objective, this thing, the wine bottle. It's like a 5,000 foot wall. But um, ultimately, we didn't quite get the weather and conditions weren't really ideal. So we wound up doing a couple of new routes that were like, pretty stupid they were like not good routes right but um but you know we, we did something yeah um but we also took a lot of photos of jackets and things and skied around and okay like, right yeah. um some some designers came to the glacier and so it was all sort of like a process right because i was going to ask you about that because um obviously one of the other sort of key you know if you like achievements is is the uh, the fitzroy traverse that you did mm-hmm. a couple of years ago so is that is that an area like alpinism that you're interested in exploring more um, I mean, I like alpinism in so much as it makes me appreciate the rest of climbing. You right. know, like, I mean, okay. I like doing a couple weeks of alpinism a year because yeah. it makes me appreciate sport climbing more. Right. But I don't love alpinism. Like, I'll never be an alpinist. It's not like you've like, got some, like, ambition to take no, it all to the no. Himalayas. Or... No, I do not care about big mountains. Right. And I don't really like the snow. And, yeah. Um, 
you know, the thing is, alpinism does take place in the most beautiful places on earth. You know, like it's really nice being in the big mountains. It's like really amazing. And I, and I enjoy getting to go to those places and, and see the mountains. Yeah. But the thing is, you know, the climbing isn't as good. It's like really scary. And you like kind of lose, lose fitness for real rock climbing because you're spending so much time in a tent or like yeah. hiking. And so, you know, I mean, I'd rather climb. Yeah. But do doing like, one or two trips a year is pretty cool though. Do you like the fact that you're a bit out of your, out of your depth? in those yeah. situations because that's one of the things that came across in the film that you did with Tommy Caldwell about that, that mm-hmm. expedition you seem to almost really quite enjoy the fact that you were the guy that, that, that was less experienced and well it's not that it's that I mean and I think this is true for most people it's kind of fun being a beginner in a new yeah. sport where that's you feel like that's yeah there's no expectation at. there's yeah. no and you learn really quickly so yeah. like each time you try you can be much better the next time it looked like you were like, really enjoying having him there as like you know yeah. somebody you could learn from and yeah I mean for me it's nice to have somebody who's like the boss you know I'm yeah. just tagging along doing my best and, and yeah. I'm not in charge of the decisions because yeah. like when I'm rock climbing with somebody like pretty much anybody I go rock climbing with like I'm certainly going to be you know a peer or I'm going to be the person leading yeah you know what I mean but there aren't that many, to you. Yeah. yeah there aren't that many people who are going to like guide me rock climbing yeah but like in the mountains all of my friends are better than me yeah so I'm just like I just stay right behind them and say like this is sweet you know it feels like tourism because yeah. they're just like taking me up these cool things right but yeah so so have you got any of the any trips like that planned in the well, future well so I'm going to Antarctica this winter oh wow um yeah to awesome. climb uh in Queen Maudland Granite Big Walls okay so that's sort of like the ultimate alpinism type of thing. Yeah, having just said like, yeah, I'm not too bothered about that. I know, I know. <laughs> but again, it's one of those things where you're like going to Antarctica is like quite the life experience. Yeah, and, right. and the walls are going to be outrageous and I'm sure it'll be cool. Yeah, but, yeah, that sounds... But that said, I'm sure for the next year afterward, I'll be like stoked to go sport climbing. Yeah. But, and do you have any... So, you know, you've obviously had projects on the go. Do you have anything anything else that, you've, that you're prepping for now? Uh, no, not really. No. I, honestly, the, the LCAP thing and the film project for the last year and a half have been pretty all-consuming. And so yeah. now I'm sort of catching up on work and sponsor obligations and doing some speaking and, yeah. you know, some Coming other expeditions. And, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, because, I mean, it's hard to be, like, working on a climbing project if you, like, fly to London for a weekend. Sure. Because, like, I'm going to be wrecked when I go home. Yeah, that's You know, a, like, I'm tired. And, you know, I'm, like, I'm pooped. Yeah. You know, so realistically, that sets you back, like, a week if you were training. Yeah. Which is, like pretty big hit if you're like serious about training yeah and how's the film looking is it finished um yeah it's supposed to premiere at sundance this winter so we'll see wow um and then it's supposed to be a theatrical release next summer so like in movie theaters next summer yeah but we'll see is that the biggest sort of project like that that you've worked on oh yeah i mean that's like possibly the biggest project like that's ever happened in climbing yeah you know national geographic yeah i mean but like a full-on movie in movie theaters you know like you can go see like thor 3 or see like this climbing movie yeah yeah you know, it's like going to be, it's going to be crazy. And that's with your, it's Jimmy Chin, right? That you, yeah, Jimmy and his wife, Chai Vassar Haley. And you've worked you work with those guys a lot, yeah? Yeah, I've worked with Jimmy a lot over the years. Um, this is my first time working with the two of them, like as directors of a film. But yeah. Yeah. And was it fun? Did you enjoy it? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, it's never like fun to film exactly because it's like, Slow. It's, yeah, well, and it's a lot more work and it's like stressful and you wait for people and it's just like, it's, it's a process. But everybody involved in the film were all good friends of mine, so it's like nice to hang out with my friends, and it's nice that we're all together doing something. And mostly, it's it's going to be nice to see the film, you know. Like, I mean, I'm proud of the climb. The footage is going to be beautiful. Like, yeah. I'm pretty sure that it's going to be a good film, you know. Like, I'm stoked to see it. Yeah, yeah. Have you have but you seen a lot of the footage then? I've seen nothing. Oh, really? So I know nothing about it. And you you won't see it until till it's out. No, presumably, I don't know. Oh, that's cool. Um, but they've been pretty strict about like documentary filmmaking. So um, the subject is like removed from from the whole filmmaking process. Right. So that's interesting. Um, yeah, like 
Jimmy's wife Chai is is like a very serious documentary filmmaker. Yeah. Because like typically in climbing films, it's like, oh, bro, check out the footage. You know, everyone just like hangs out and looks yeah. at the stuff. Kind of action but, sports in general. Yeah, right? exactly. Action yeah. sports in general for sure. But um, but no, Chai is very like strict documentarian. That's but, interesting then. So it'd be, inter- yeah. it'd be good to see. So it's been like much more strict ethics too. You know, there's right. like no real posing and like it's much more like they just get the shot of what's happening and like that's it. Yeah. But so it's much more work to get that though because it means they have to go up things ahead of time and like be in position and then sometimes it doesn't work out and like, you know, um, yeah, it's been, it's been a process for sure. Yeah. But. And what about the rest of the year? You're just back to the States and just, it seems like you live quite a, quite a free Nomadic. and easy. Yeah, yeah, you know, quite a free and easy life, you know. Obviously, yeah, it's every- funny, free and easy, but like my schedule is pretty booked all the way through January right now. Oh, really? So I could tell you like virtually day by day all the way through January. How, how do you feel about that? Is that is that quite a new thing since this um, has happened? It's been steadily ramping up over the years. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's funny because it still feels free and easy. I'm like, oh, I'm going to Europe for a couple of weeks. Yeah. It'll be awesome because yeah. actually I'm, I'm going to climb in the Dolomites for a few weeks. Okay. Um, which I'm excited about. Never been there. I've always yeah. wanted to. And then a couple of weeks in Yosemite doing things, but it's all very specific projects with specific partners. It's all like right. booked, you know? Yeah. Okay. But I'm still like, it's way better than having like a job and yeah, getting my yeah. two weeks of vacation every year. Yeah, definitely. You know, I'm like I'm stoked. Yeah. But, but you're still living in the, I mean, you know, everybody always asks you about the van, don't they? Oh, yeah, no, living, I'm still living, you're in, the living in the van. Sure. You know, like how's the van, all that. But that's yeah. still. Yeah, I'm still like in, I flew from the van. My girlfriend is in my van right now. Yeah. And I fly back and I'll hang out with her again. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what about travel? Have you got any more sort of travel ambitions apart from Antarctica you mentioned? But oh yeah, for sure. I mean, there are tons of places that I want to climb that I've never been. Like yeah. I've never been to Southeast Asia at all. And okay. like I'd love to climb in Thailand or something. And yeah. you know, Tasmania is supposed to be like a, you know, experience. Um, I mean, there are a lot of things like that. Like I've never been to Madagascar and the flora and fauna are supposed to be outrageous. The climbing is really cool. Yeah. Like, um, yeah, there are a lot of places in the world for sure. Can I ask you about the Honold Foundation? Yeah, it was, it's funny. I almost just said, and there's also travel for the foundation. Because yeah. like right now we're supporting a project in Ethiopia. Okay. So um, I've never been to Ethiopia, but um, we did a climate expedition in Kenya last winter. Right. And so we met with this guy who's like an entrepreneur in Ethiopia that does off-grid solar. And so we're supporting his, his. Uh, I mean, I suppose it's technically a for-profit, but basically his organization that does off-grid solar. Um and so, I mean, I'm sure I'll be traveling more in the future to support those projects. Yeah. But. And do you have a really hands-on role in sort of deciding where, you know, how you kind of award those kind of grants or, um, or decide yeah, what say, projects you work on? Yeah, I'd say I have a very hands-on role in deciding what we're going to do. I don't have a very hands-on role in like day-to-day operations yeah. and like dealing with the back-end stuff and dealing with, you know, like registering the domain names for the website and things like yeah, that. Yeah. Like I have got um, people to do that. Yeah, a friend of mine yeah. deals with that. That's Actually, nice. it's just it's just one guy. Yeah. But um, yeah, he's a friend of mine. He's an attorney, and he he's he's my executive director. Okay. But the foundation's right. like pretty pretty small like that because we've mostly been just giving grants to other organizations. So um, that basically just means meeting with people, figuring out what their project is, how it works, and then seeing how we can support it. Right. So and then we've done a handful that are more hands on. How do you how do you find the projects? Do people come to you or? Um, some people come to us, some just sort of like through network, you know, you know somebody that knows somebody. Like yeah. another friend of mine who's a climber uh, was working for a company, Off Grid Electric, which works in the same space. It's like a um, startup that works in, you know, solar projects in Africa. Yeah. Um, so he like knew everybody in the whole, and he used to work as like a clean tech analyst for Bloomberg. So he like knows the space really well. Right. Um, and so, you know, he can introduce you. He's the person that introduced me to the guy in Ethiopia that we're working with. Right. Okay. Um, I mean, it's just kind of like you meet someone that meets somebody. And, yeah. Yeah. Do you have Do you have an idea of the kind of project that you want to do through the foundation? Yeah. Well, I mean, typically I look for projects 
that help the environment and improve standard of living. Right. Or like basically lift people out of poverty while while helping the environment. Right. And so that's kind of why I've gravitated towards solar projects because it's like a clear, you know, reducing carbon emissions because you're like not burning things for fuel. Yeah. Um, but it also is really big with helping people in poverty, like particularly in East Africa because people spend such a high percentage of their income on fuel, like buying kerosene to light their home. Yeah. So when they can switch to a solar lantern, you know, the health benefits are, are terrific because they're not burning kerosene in a hut, which is terrible for you. Um, but then they're also saving a ton of money, which allows, you know, kids to go to school, kids to study at night. Like, I mean, it's a big quality of life thing. Yeah. Um, and then even in the, in the developed world, because I've been supporting this group, uh, Grid Alternatives, it's like works nationally in the U.S. Um, you know, I mean, even, even there, it's like uh, putting home solar systems for low-income families. It's the same sort of deal where it's like, you know, the people who need the help the most are saving money from it. And then you're also slowly greening the grid. You know, yeah. It's like cleaning up the power grid. Yeah. So was that always something that you were interested in? Um, I mean, I think that over the years, my interest in like helping the environment how I can has, has increased for sure. And then I think this gravitating towards solar type projects has just sort of happened naturally. I think it appeals to my inherent sense of, of like cleanliness, you know, like a nice, clean, elegant solution. Yeah. Um, because it's sort of like the double, like the win, win, win type of thing where you're like, Oh, it's good for the planet. It's good for people. Like it's the way things should be. Yeah, exactly. Well, it's a positive technological solution, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Exactly. And it's just like, it just seems like the right thing, you know? And and a lot of my climbing is kind of like that where you're like, well, that's a nice way to do it. Like it's clean. It's elegant. That's part of the appeal of soloing. You know, you're just like, Oh, that's such a like nice, clean way to do it. So that ethical consideration is something that is, is part of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, just I like I like nice solutions where you're right. like that's the right way to do it. Yeah, okay. You know, right. But well, obviously that's a, a, a theme, isn't it, throughout climbing, basically. Yeah, how, I mean, how I mean, so climb. much of climbing is like trying to find the solution. Yeah, you know, trying to find the best way to do something. The best way to and climb. And that's so much of soloing is to find the most perfect way to do this. Yeah. As, uh, you know, a sequence. It's yeah. Like to find the way that feels secure, but you know, is still doable, and um, yeah, to find like the best solution. Well, I guess that leads me to, because I think we've probably got to wrap it up fairly soon, haven't we? But I guess that that leads me to uh, the question, what's next? Um, Yeah, I mean, that's the classic. What's next? I mean, basically a year of of other things, you know, like, I mean, the the film premiere, and then I'm supposed to give a TED Talk next year, actually. Oh, wow. So at some point, I've got to come up with a good idea to talk about. Wow. What what an opportunity that is. That's great. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's really cool. And I'm, I'm sure I'll talk about all cap. I'll probably talk about... Um, you know, taking an, an impossible goal and breaking into the right pieces, but that's pretty cliche, you know. So I kind of have to find like the right way to to, to frame it. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I have you know six months to figure it out. Yeah. But yeah. basically, a lot of things like that coming up in the next year. Okay. I guess. Great. And then you know, while still trying to be an okay rock climber. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sure you'll be uh, you'll I'm be sure all over best. that. Yeah. If you judge by how I've been climbing in the gym today, it's like we'll see. Uh, you've got we'll jet see. lag. You're allowed. Yeah, yeah, you're, we'll allowed see. you're allowed. We'll an see. off day. You're allowed off day. Yeah, we'll see. Um, well, thank you, Alex. No, my pleasure. That's been nice chatting. Cool. Yeah, thanks a lot. So there you go. That was Alex Honold, and uh, thanks again to Alex and the people at North Face and Mongoose PR for helping set that one up. Um, yeah, I thought it turned out really well. It, we had to do it in two halves in the end because uh, Alex was pretty busy that day and was getting pulled all over the place. But he did he did seem to really enjoy our conversation, which I was happy to see. And he seemed to really like digging into the details of the climb and talking about you know his, uh, his time in the UK and stuff. So he came back for part two and we wrapped it up nicely, I, I thought. Uh, you know, if I'm going to bring out the old Tim Ferriss uh, relatable actions list from this one... Then the interesting stuff for me really was Alex on the preparation that went into Freerider, the lists, the breaking, the 
the major task down into component parts, the mental preparation, the visualization. Um, but it's interesting that once he knew he was ready to go, he just went and did it. And what did he say? After that, you're just procrastinating. Definitely a lesson there for anybody who's got any kind of life goal and keeps finding endless reasons not to do it. So yeah, nice one, Alex. Thanks again for taking the time to do it and I, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to find out more about Alex and his achievements, head on over to the website www.wearelookingsideways.com where you'll find the usual show notes which contextualise the whole thing have uh, lots of links and stuff you can dig right into. There's some stunning photography of uh, of Alex on Freerider. Um, so thanks for letting me use those. And yeah, you, you can find out much more. Elsewhere, usual bit of uh, post-podcast housekeeping. Thanks as ever to everyone who's been leaving me nice reviews on iTunes. I am tantalizingly close to 50 five-star reviews. I think I've got 47 at the time of recording, which is great. Thanks to everybody who's done that, especially because the uh, iTunes user experience is absolutely shocking. I know it's a pain. I know you went the extra mile for me. And for that, I thank you. Um, or if you've contacted me personally about the show, I'm getting contacts through LinkedIn, Twitter. People are emailing me. Um, it's great. Everyone seems to really like it. And um, that's much appreciated. I do completely agree with everybody who's dissing me for not having enough women on the show. I've had a few people um, pointing that out again. Um, so how about this? Head over to my Facebook page, which again, you can find through my website, www.wearelookingsideways.com and just let me know who I should feature and better yet, tag them in so they know what this is and that they should be paying attention to it. I'm very, very open to any suggestions. Just so you know, forthcoming interviewees do include Shauna Coxey, who just reclaimed her word world bouldering title and uh, who by all accounts is a delightful um, individual. So I'm looking forward to that one. I've also got Ben Skinner currently in the, uh, the the editing process. Not that he needed much editing, but, you know, they always need a little bit of tinkering. And that's a great one. Very, very interesting. Quite gossipy on that, which I, which I enjoyed. Um, and then Hugo Tagholm, Chief Executive Surface Against Sewage, formidably intelligent and articulate presence Hugo and uh yeah it, that was another very insightful conversation that'll have you uh fired up to be sorting out your single-use plastic um addiction I would say once you hear that one so th thanks Hugo that'll be in a few weeks that one but yeah you know head on over to Facebook let me know who you'd like to hear from um I think if you've been listening to this for a while now, you kind of get where I'm coming from. So it's all on. So yeah, in the meantime, thanks again for listening to it. If you're new, if you're here for Alex, stick around, you know. Um, I, people generally seem to just quite enjoy the fact that you don't particularly need to to know much about the guests. It's more about what we talk about. And uh, But, you know, Shauna Coxie, got Johnny Dawes on the way. You know, it should be some... Should be enough there to keep you interested anyway. So yeah, hope you enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for listening. See you later. Bye-bye.